Welcome to the True Crime Cafe. I'm Angie. I'm Becky. And you won't believe the case I have for you today. What do you have for me today, my darling Becky? I have a triple murder. Oh, yeah. Triple? Triple. I know I said I was just going to murder last time we talked, but triple. And it's in South Carolina where right now the humidity is like a thousand percent and our heat index is in quadruple digits. You know, they say it's not the heat, it's the humidity in South Carolina, it's both. They work together. But before we get started, I want to give a shout out to our friends at Kings River Life's Mystery Rats Maze podcast, where you can hear mysteries by your favorite authors come to life. The episodes consist of mystery short stories and the first chapters of mystery novels read and brought to you by local actors. So to listen to the episodes and subscribe to the podcast, you can go to mysteryratsmaze.podbean.com. And you can also find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically everywhere you can find us. Some of their featured authors include a lot of my mystery writer friends, including Cleo Coyle, Ellen Byron, Jerry Westerson, who writes amazing mysteries set in the time of the Knights Templar, I think. Their historical mysteries, Dennis Palumbo, Lori Raider Day, who just wrote a really great book inspired by Agatha Christie. Kate Carwell, Ellery Adams, John Land, Maddie Day, and so many more. And they reviewed my cozy mysteries, which I write as RA Moof on their website. And so I'm really grateful to them for that. And if you like cozy mysteries, shameless plug here, my next book, The Bath Bomb Zombie, comes out July 27th, which is like a week after this episode will air. So yeah. And I still don't know who the murderer is. Yeah, I'm in down to the last few chapters. And my editor's like, do we know who the murderer is yet? And I'm like, nope. I won't know until the characters find out. <laughs> won't know that. until the characters tell me. Yep. Works that way every time. So, but right now we're going to talk about something far less cozy, a triple murder on Folly Beach, South Carolina. Ooh. Yeah. I know you're familiar with Folly Beach. Oh yeah. That used to be my the closest beach to me before we bought our house. So yeah. like where we were running, mm-hmm. that was the closest beach to me. Yeah. So for those who don't know, Folly Beach is on James Island, and residents describe it like a big neighborhood backyard. The tourists don't come here because they want the fast-paced atmosphere of Myrtle Beach, which is home to Carolina Country Music Fest, which like 35,000 people attended in 2022, and I'm pretty sure there were even more people this summer. But Folly Beach, in comparison, has always been a slower-paced vacation spot, mostly for families. It's somewhere between 12 to 18 square miles, depending on whether you look at wikipedia or some other geography resource it also has the nickname the edge of america yeah that's cool so i looked down google maps and because i haven't been there so i just took a google map stroll and some youtube videos and it looks really eclectic with restaurants and bars and gift shops and businesses like all there together kind of like a little melting pot for different types of businesses along main street and from what i understand it's becoming more popular with surfers lately like Mm -hmm. the surfing crowd depending on which end like Folly Beach is, you have the surfers at one end, mm-hmm. mainly, and then you have, like, the quote-unquote family-type area. Yeah. The other end, like, depends. Like, when you drive on the Folly Beach, you literally, the main road dead ends at mm-hmm. the hotel, and if you turn left, you go down where, like, all the surfers usually go, and if you turn yeah. right, you go down where all, like, the family usually goes. Okay. That makes sense, though. Mm-hmm. 
So today, the population of Folly Beach is about 2,100 people, which is smaller than my tiny little town in the northeastern part of the state. About 50 years ago, the population was closer to 1,100 people. So you can imagine what the island was like with about half that many people half a century ago. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because today's case is taking us back in time to 1973. So in 1973, Nixon was sworn into a second term. The Vietnam War was coming to a close. The Sears Tower in Chicago topped out as the world's largest building. Skylab, America's first space station, was launched. And The Godfather had just won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. And if you haven't read the book, I promise it's better than the movie. It's just awesome. I was born in 72. And even though I was a year old then, even up into the 80s, when... We went out, it was use the buddy system because we didn't have cell phones. We probably didn't even have a dime for the payphone to tell you how cheap payphones were back then. I remember when payphones went from a dime to a quarter. But the general rule was always stay with your buddy and be home when the streetlights come on. Mm -hmm. And that was the, pretty much the same rule for Alexis Latimer and Sherry Clark, who lived two streets apart, and they both loved the beach. Alexis loved to read. Sherry was a baton twirler and played clarinet. Alexis was getting ready to get her braces off. Both girls were very smart and they were looking forward to starting high school in the fall. One was 13, one was 14. So one afternoon in May 1973, Alexis and Sherry went down to the beach. I looked up what the weather would have been during this time because it was so long ago and it was still pretty typical late spring, early summer day on the South Carolina coast. It was sunny out. The weather was in the high 70s. It was the kind of day that when it happens now, it kind of makes me want to blow off my adult responsibilities and just go to the beach. I can imagine being 13 or 14 and with a walking distance of the beach, using the buddy system, it should have been a great day at the beach for these two best friends. Author Mark Jones wrote in a blog article about the girls that they headed out about mid-afternoon. And unfortunately, that was the last time anyone would see them alive. When the girls didn't come home by dark, Alexis's mom sent Alexis's brothers down to the beach to tell them it was time to come home, but the girls weren't there. She then called Sherry's dad, who joined the search. The police were notified, but the police told their parents they probably went off with some boys. Even though the police tried to dismiss the girls' families, they insisted to the police that Alexis and Sherry were responsible girls who followed the rules and they would not have run off with boys. To be honest, after everything I've read, and not to defend the police for trying to blow this off, but the Folly Beach Police Department 50 years ago was not equipped to handle a missing persons case like this. So Alexis's mom said they were told the police could not do anything until the girls had been missing for guess how long? 48 hours. Two weeks. What? Yeah. Negative ghost rider. Mm-hmm. So when the police finally did get on board two weeks later, they followed incident reports, but their investigation turned up nothing, which is not shocking at all. Mm -mm. When we were watching the Buried in the Backyard episode about this, my husband looked at the TV and yelled, what do you expect? It's been two weeks. And usually I'm the one yelling at the TV and he's telling me to calm down. You're yelling at the TV. I'm yeah. really truly <laughs> It would not be the last time he yelled at the TV while we watched that episode. But mm. eventually I had to stop reading him my notes because he kept getting angrier and angrier. Because after mm. the episode, which normally I'll find out about a case, like either through a Facebook post or a true crime episode or something. And then mm -hmm. I go and down the rabbit hole and mm -hmm. I would peek out from the rabbit hole and be like, oh, and here's what they didn't tell you in the episode. This is this. And he's like, are you serious? Are you kidding me? Yeah. 
yeah, he was really upset. So in the meantime, Alexis and Sherry's families were handing out flyers. They were asking the newspapers to put out reports. And they were getting the word out any way they could because it's 1973. And like I said before, no cell phones, no social media. Back in 1973, kids were playing games like kick the can, where you literally went out into your yard and you kicked an empty can around. And my mom tried to get us to play this in the 80s, but we had an Atari and we were like, mom, we would literally rather play Pong than go outside and kick an empty can around the yard. No. (laughs) Four months later in September, at a time when the girls should have been starting a new school year, Alexis's mom is desperate. She would do anything to find her daughter. And both of us being mothers, thank God we don't know what this is like firsthand, but I know we can empathize. Oh, yeah, definitely. So she contacted a psychic. And it sounds like, if I understood the articles correctly, it sounded like this was a psychic that she wrote to by mail. Mm -hmm. The only thing she had told him was that her daughter is missing. And when he responded, he said, the girls are probably dead. And he sent her a hand-drawn map of where he thought the girls were probably buried on the north side of Bali Beach. So the Air Force flew over the area, they scanned it for anyone buried under the sand, and they came up with nothing. And I was kind of shocked that 50 years ago, they had that level of technology. But you noticed it was the Air Force, not... Right. Like, the police departments now have, like, drones and helicopters and infrared and... Yeah. Yeah. So back then, they had to get the military involved, which Mm -hmm. kind of reinforces that the Folly Beach Police Department was just not equipped at all. I mean, in their defense, they're yeah. tiny. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it doesn't excuse I mean, so the whole I get year. It. Yeah, it doesn't excuse the whole. You got to wait two weeks, but no, of course it doesn't. Yeah, but again, I can kind of understand. But yeah, I mean, back in the seventies, though, was that was more the norm than. Oh, you got to wait 24 or 48 hours, you know? Mm-hmm. So at this point, Alexis's mom just wanted to know if her daughter was alive or dead. Sherry's mom wanted to keep things as normal as possible for the rest of her family, which included Sherry's dad and her sister, Paula, who was only eight years old at the time. Mm. But regardless of how they went about it and tried to find the girls while keeping things normal, that question's always hanging over them. Where are the oh, girls? Yeah. Yeah, what happened yeah, to the like, girls? Where are they? Around the same time in September of 1973, a young woman in the Charleston area, who I think was about 19 or 20, she picked up a sailor and she took him back to her North Charleston apartment. Now, this is what, like 20 minutes by car from Folly Beach, if that? To where? Folly Beach to North Charleston? Yeah. Yeah, 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. So when they got there, he tied her to the bed. And the more she struggled, the more turned on he got until she told him, look, if you're going to have sex with me, get it over with, because I have other things to do. Wow. Yeah. Okay, when she, yeah. When she said that, totally killed the mood. He was no longer turned on, and he let her go. She did contact naval authorities, but they told her that it was a police matter because it did not happen on base. And because she had been drinking when it happened, she just let it drop. So let's fast forward to Valentine's Day, 1974. Okay. So now we're at nine months after the girl's going missing. Mm-hmm. A girl was walking home from the James Island Shopping Center about five or six miles from Folly Beach when she decided to take a shortcut through the woods. A man grabbed her, tied her to a tree, and sexually assaulted her. He had no intention of letting her go, but somebody else was walking through the woods, and the man took off, and the girl screamed for help. And it's good that she did, because even though she was terrified, 
she was able to give police a description of the man. So meanwhile, somewhere else in the area, there's a man with a similar physical description who was reported to have been sitting in his car and exposing himself to young girls. Because he fit the description, the police brought him in for questioning to see if this other girl from the woods would pick him out of the lineup. The girl took one look at the men in the lineup, had an immediate reaction, and she said, no, he's not there. They had her look again, but her answer did not change. She's like, no, none of these guys are him. Unfortunately, a third girl would go missing on February 20th, 1974, a week after the Valentine's Day abduction that we just mentioned. Mm -hmm. This time, it was the police chief's 16-year-old daughter, Earlene Bunch who was last seen about two blocks from her home, and she was walking in the direction of her home. And again, during the Barry in the Backyard episode, when we got to this part of the story, my husband looks up from his phone, stares at the TV, and yells, oh, they didn't wait two weeks when the police mm -hmm. chief's daughter went missing, did they? I bet you they freaking didn't. And I'm like, honey, it's 50 years ago. Calm down. It's cool. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you're a familiar listener to our podcast, you know that some part of me was right there with him. I think the wait to report a missing person, it's, it's total bull. Mm -hmm. so, 16 year old Erlene was a responsible young girl just like Alexis and Sherry and now the whole town is on edge because if the police chief's daughter isn't safe nobody's safe and this is the third girl so a month mm -hmm. later in March 1974 on Folly Beach this man was walking his dog and his dog found a bloody maggot filled carcass and he's like okay some dead sea animal and he dragged his dog further down the beach a few weeks later on Good Friday still in 1974 a girl named Donna and her two friends were walking on the beach. It was a beautiful day. The weather was gorgeous. One report I read said that they ditched school to go to the beach. And I can't say I blamed them. Because when I was in high school, I would ditch school to go to Dairy Queen. So at the beach... Total common occurrence. Yeah. Yep. If the beach was nearby, I would have ditched school. I probably never would have graduated. Total and, common occurrence. Yeah. And kind of like now, where you and I, we don't have traditional 9 to 5 Monday through Friday jobs because our boss is awesome and lets us pick our hours pretty much. Mm -hmm. I know I have that freedom probably more than you do, but mm -hmm. you know, yeah. there have been times when I've told clients, hey, I'm going to be away from my desk for the next six hours and just, you know, run down to spend the afternoon at the beach. Can't say that. One of our clients listened to us. Anyway. Uh, anyway. So Donna saw something that's kind of rare to find. It was a whole sand dollar in perfect condition. And mm -hmm. sand dollars are fragile. They get beat up by the waves and all. So when you find one, it's in perfect condition. You want to take it home. It's easier to find them on some beaches than others. Like when we went to Sanibel Island, Florida, they were all over the place. Because it was mm -hmm. in the Gulf of Mexico, the waves aren't as bad. And it had just stormed, so dredged up a lot of seashells and stuff. Mm -hmm. but, like, I have never seen one on Myrtle Beach, and I've been here since 2000. And we used to visit a couple times a year before that. Mm -hmm. So Donna bent down to pick up the sand dollar. And when she stood, she was facing the barrel of a pistol. The man holding it said to come with him, that he had killed three people and he would not hesitate to kill again. Mm. Donna said they were very innocent girls. And as she walked, the sand dollar crumbled in her hand because she was holding onto it so tight. Mm. A man led them to a nearby beach house. Donna told him he could have her car and begged him just to let her go. The man told her to shut up. He put something in the girl's mouth to gag them. I think it was cloth. And Donna was thinking things like she had just bought her junior senior prom dress, but she might never get to wear it. Mm -hmm. So around this time, before the guy could really do anything, a patrol car pulled up and the man told him to shut up and he left the beach house. Donna saw a police officer walking on the beach. She used her tongue to push the gag out of her mouth and she started screaming. None of my research that I did said anything else about this, but my guess is that if you're going to die anyway, why not go down screaming for help? 
The police was out there doing a check for something. And he untied the girls whose hands and feet were bound. The girls were in shock. They were hugging each other with relief. But Donna says the man took her innocence, like not in a sexual way, but like you can't walk on the beach with your friends without being kidnapped. Mm -hmm. The three girls gave descriptions and it matched the description of the girl who had been kidnapped in the woods. So the police were convinced that this one man was behind all the missing and kidnapped girls. By now, the police are working overtime to find this man, and they even published a composite in the newspaper. So let's jump ahead to mid-April 1974. That dog walker kept thinking about the girls. So he contacted the city manager, who was a friend of his. They went back out with shovels to where his dog was digging, and they found a piece of clothing. So they arranged for a bulldozer to scrape the sand about six feet across the area, and there was nothing. Second pass, nothing. The bulldozer operator decided to make a third and final pass, you know, like we're already out here. It's not going to hurt anything to try one more time. As the bucket raised, blonde hair fell out. And what they had uncovered was a blonde haired female bound in rope. Her feet were tied together, just like the girls in the beach house. And unfortunately, it did turn out to be the police chief's daughter. A Folly Beach detective who was there said he knew who it was when he saw the hair because first responders are like a big family where everybody knows everybody. Mm -hmm. This is true. When our boys were little, all the firefighters who worked with my husband knew who they were, more or less from my frantic phone calls to vent about their misbehavior, which is a story for a different podcast. But if I was out running errands and we ran into one of his coworkers, they would stop to talk. They talked to the boys. When we were snowed in at home and my husband was stuck at the firehouse, there was one of the Mm -hmm. firefighters who lived in our neighborhood. And our neighborhood was on the side of a mountain. Like our yard was a 45 degree angle. And he would come out in a snowmobile to see if we needed milk or bread or anything. When tragedy struck, it hit everybody. So while no one missing girl should be a priority over the other, and while it took a police chief's daughter going missing to kick this investigation into high gear, I do Mm -hmm. understand the process. He knew what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't have the police chief's daughter go missing and it not be a, a higher priority. I mean, it's yeah. just the way it is. It is. So a 20-year-old woman saw the composite in the newspaper and came forward. She was drinking when a man took her to a beach house and tied her up. I couldn't find out why, but for whatever reason, he let her go and she could tell them exactly who it was. The man was a 31-year-old petty officer in the U.S. Navy named Richard Valenti. When the police showed up at his address, he was coming out of his residence and they took him into custody. He did not show any emotion. In his residence, they found a toy gun and strips of a bedspread that matched what had been used to tie up the other girls. Donna and her friends went to pick him out of a lineup. Donna said she would never forget his eyes. In one article I read, described them as piercing eyes and another one called his eyes soulless. So this guy, he straight up confesses. He describes how he hogtied Earlene, the police chief's daughter, and slowly choked her to death and buried her on Folly Beach. So the police now need him to confess to the murders of Alexis and Sherry. And he does. He used the same toy gun method to take them to the beach house. He used strips from the same bedspread to tie them up. But he hung them from a pipe in an outside shower. And for our listeners who don't live near the beach or just haven't ever visited the beach, It's pretty popular for houses along the beach and even houses within walking distance to the beach to have an outside shower where you can rinse the sand from your body Mm -hmm. before you go inside. And because trust me, if you've been in, especially if you've been in the ocean, the sand is not just on you. It's in your bathing suit. It's everywhere. It's gross. Mm -hmm. So Richard said he had the girls on chairs, but the girls kicked the chairs over. And instead of putting the chairs back so these girls could have a chance to live, he just watched them Mm -hmm. die. 
And that is one of the coldest things I have ever heard in my life. Uh-huh. Richard said he had first fantasized about tying women up when he was about six years old. Which oh, is about wow. Yeah, that was about 25 years before his arrest. So he had time to think about those. His wow. wife said that she was disturbed by his fascination with bondage. And if bondage is your thing, it's your thing. It's a topic in romance novels that has a million dollar following, but like, don't kill people. There's a reason we have safe words. So like, we're not judging anybody if you enjoy bondage. Richard Mm -hmm. took the police to the beach house and showed them where he murdered Alexis and Sherry. And then he showed them where he buried them in the backyard of the beach cottage. It had been a year, but the girls were still clothed and the cloth to tie them up was still in place. And one of the saddest things to me is that Alexis who was so looking forward to getting her braces off, still had her braces off. Mm-hmm. So like that was her big goal for the end of the summer was to get her braces off and start a new school year. And she she never got either. And not that it would have made it better if this happened after she got her braces off, but still. Yeah. Richard was indicted on three counts of murder for the deaths of the three girls that Polly beat. He was also indicted on one count of assault and battery with intent to kill and one charge of assault and battery with intent to ravish. He was also charged on four counts of assault with intent to kill stemming from the abduction of the three girls from Somerville, which was Donna and her friends, and one similar incident in which a girl was found tied up behind the James Island Shopping Center. So Alexis's mother said, although she hates knowing what they went through, she's glad that these girls did not suffer during that year that they were missing. Mm -hmm. Sherry's parents got an answer. They got closure and they were able to put Sherry to rest for the funeral to say goodbye and start their new normal. So let's jump ahead to June 1974. This trial happened really quickly. Alexis's mom was- tended to back then. Oh Yeah. Alexis's mom wasn't sure she could sit through the trial and be in the same room with the man who murdered her daughter and the other girls, but she did. The trial lasted just four days, and Valenti's wife testified that he had a bondage fetish. A doctor testified that he had a mental disorder, which was the desire to control women in bondage. And with all this knowledge, the jury deliberated for just one hour before finding him guilty on two counts of murder. For whatever reason, he was never tried for the other four counts of assault with intent to kill for the other abduction. A 2007 article in the Post and Courier reported that the prosecutor asked for the death penalty, which was denied by the judge because of the unconstitutionality of the state's capital punishment law at the time. Authorities said he confessed to killing a third teen and was also charged with attacking five more young women, but he never went to trial on those charges. At the time of his conviction, the law required that he only serve 10 years in prison before being eligible for parole. And he asked for parole every two years. So every two years, the families had to go in and explain to the parole board why he should never be released. Mm-hmm. In one video interview that I watched, Donna tried to describe what it was like to relive her kidnapping at these parole hearings and knowing the other girls weren't as lucky. And she had to stop to gather her emotions. She couldn't even get through telling this without crying. And the same with Sherry's sister, Paula. At one time, she was crying and she apologized. And I just wanted to reach the TV, hug her and tell her that she did not have any reason to apologize for anything. You know, she lost her big sister. Uh So in 2012, Richard waived his parole hearing that year for whatever reason. By 2014... An article with the Charleston, South Carolina ABC affiliate, WCIV, reported that Sherry's sister Paula was using social media to get signatures on a, on a petition to keep Valenti behind bars. And her mom had kind of done this before 
But when her mom passed away in 2003, Paula just kept it going. I mean, she had to do Mm -hmm. it for her big sister. She was quoted as saying that she frequently goes back over the newspaper articles about her sister's disappearance and murder. And she can't even fathom what her parents went through losing a child in that way. In an article from that same news source two years later, Paula said, the longer it goes on and the more time that passes, I get scared that he's getting older. The parole board will at some point think, you know, this man's not as much of a threat as he used to be. Just because he's getting older, he's in his 70s now. Two weeks ago, my daughter got married and my sister wasn't here to share in that event, which would have been a really, really happy time for my family. So in 2018, the Navy Times reported similar information from two years before that the families were still speaking at the hearings. And it echoed a concern that every two years that went by, the parole board might release him because he was two years older than the last time. So normally I don't use Reddit as a source, but there was one Reddit article I read that had a comment that parole should never have been a factor. And a reply to that comment said that if he was denied 19 times, it would seem that the system works just fine in this case. So in October of 2020, Richard Valente was unanimously denied parole for the 21st time. So thanks for our justice system for getting that right. Mm -hmm. Last month, he was hospitalized and he died in December 2020 from natural causes unrelated to COVID. Mm -hmm. Pretty fitting ending. I think so too. At least we know he will never get out. The families can rest easy Mm -hmm. knowing that he will never get out. Right. And he, he can never hurt anyone else. Exactly. He hurt too many people while he was here. And who knows how many people he hurt that we don't know about, mm-hmm. you know, like, exactly. because I'm thinking even 50 years ago, if a young girl went missing and was murdered in Charleston, it would not have been as big of a news, like it, it would not have been as newsworthy as two young teenagers going missing on Folly Beach. Oh, no, because Folly Beach is such a small, like, super small community, especially back then. Mm -hmm. Um, Less crime. I mean, yeah, well, there was less crime everywhere that many years ago. But, um, yeah, things tend to get, at least now, Charleston is grown. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exponentially. It still has the small town feel. With the exception of the traffic, but it's no longer a small town where Folly Beach is a small town. Oh, yeah. And even if we were packed to the gills with houses and businesses, it would still have a small town. It is. Since you're, yeah, because you're limited to the geography. It's only, mm-hmm. like I said, what, 12 to 18 square miles. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Whereas, like, my little town, we were coming home from Myrtle Beach and we passed a small farmer's market and it had our town name. And I'm like, that's wild that they still have our town's address when we're we're still like, you know, five miles from town and the town mm-hmm. limits. So, but that mm-hmm. doesn't really, that can't happen on a town on an island like Folly Beach. Mm-mm. No, I haven't been out to Folly Beach in a few years now, mm-hmm. just because, I mean, we moved further away from yeah. it. Um, but yeah, when stuff happens, like. There was just, what, a month ago where the bride and the groom left their wedding reception and they were on the yes. golf cart and the lady hit them and mm-hmm. the bride died like hours after saying I do. Like mm-hmm. that was huge national news. Now, had that happened in downtown Charleston, I think it would have been, I don't want to say it wouldn't have been newsworthy because it would have, but yeah. I don't think there would have been as far. Yeah, location definitely makes a difference because when you yeah. hear about a, a beach wedding, 
you don't think about an ending and a murder, like, well, it'll be vehicular homicide. So yeah, murder. Whereas if it's the middle of downtown Charlestown, or even when one of the quote unquote bad neighborhoods in Charlestown, the church was there. If someone uh-huh. was killed in a drive-by that, you know, there's yeah. many shootings as we have in America, that would, that would have just been one more shooting, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, the yeah. location and the nature, you know. Mm-hmm. And especially back then, because. Oh yeah. In the seventies, true crime was not talked about as much as it is now. Oh, like no. it just wasn't nope. in the story. Um, like, and I can even remember like growing up, like I was born in the mid seventies. Mm-hmm. So I can even remember like, even in the late eighties and early nineties, like it was a big deal. It was like the Sunday night movie on CBS yeah. or something, you know, it wasn't hey we have channels dedicated to it right like when i was growing up we didn't have true crime shows but we did have the after school special that told you like not to drink and drive and you know i remember the after school special yeah yep i'm gonna have to ask my uncles if they remember this because they would have been in the 70s they would have been grown not yeah. like grown grown but they yeah. would have been old enough, late, to remember. old enough to remember it yeah yeah my parents never really talked about names dates details it was just take a buddy so the bad guy won't get you mm-hmm. or you know strangers the buddy system yep stranger danger mm-hmm. yep yeah i'll have to ask my uncles yeah. if they remember this case i mean they're boys i mean well, men they may not have taken as much notice to it as like my mom and my aunt would have, but like they live on James Island. So oh, wow. mm-hmm. So they may have. Yeah. My aunt may remember it too. So yeah, I'll have to ask and then I will let you know. Yeah. We can do an update. Yes. Stay caffeinated. And join us next time for another cup of crime. <laughs>